A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Sasha, hello, how are you? I'm really good. Thanks for having me, Andy. We're delighted to have you. Absolutely delighted. We start our films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and tell us a bit about what they do. So would you mind doing that, please? Sure. Hello. Uh, my name is Sasha Coward. And uh, describing my job, it could take the entire podcast. So I'll try and just shorten it down. Basically, I'm the most hipster person you've ever met. Uh, <laughs> in that, I am a queer tour guide, a folklore expert, and an escape room designer. Uh, so, I mean, it's three things that shouldn't really go together uh, and tells you a lot about our weird, wonderful, broken world that we live in, that someone like me can exist and be allowed to exist, suckling off the teat of society. No, I mean, I, basically, I've taken all the things that I'm passionate about, the things that interest me and have for a long time. Uh, and if there was one narrative through, through all those three weird things that we'll maybe unpack a little bit more later, it is about storytelling. So... I love telling stories, particular kinds of stories in particular ways. Uh, but when it comes down to it, that's kind of the thing that I'm obsessed with, finding exciting ways to tell stories. Yeah, great. That's a brilliant intro. Thank you. And a really generous one. Um, I feel like this is a bit of a leading question to start with, Sasha. But um, since you're talking about the importance of storytelling, um, from what I know of your work, I want to ask, first of all, um, is there something distinctive about um, telling past stories now? Like I feel like you have a commitment to various kinds of histories and then the question of retelling them now and who you might get to tell them to. Yeah, so I guess at this point, it's worth saying that one of the places, one of the institutions or kinds of institutions I work with are museums. So buildings which generally, not explicitly, but generally are full of old stuff. So old stuff is, is another thing that I'm quite obsessed with. And I work a lot with history, sometimes even ancient history or paleontology. So sometimes even fossils from you know anything from a million years ago to yesterday is pretty much my remit. Um, and I really like telling those stories because I know it's, it's such a cliche that people say, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. But, the, but there is something in that. I think that through looking at the past, our collective past, you can learn a huge amount about who we are, mm. where we're coming from, who we're going to be. Um, I know like from my experience, the reason I got into museums is obviously I, as a kid, I loved dinosaurs. I loved the spectacle and just going into a big space and being like, my God, that's a dead person in a cabinet. How exciting uh, as, as most seven-year-olds are prompted to. But as I went into my teens, it was more about trying to work out who I was and you know, what, what is me, Sasha Coward, this little blip in the universe full of people, full of this whole world of human experience, where do I fit in? And so seeing stories from 10 years ago, 200 years ago, 6,000 years ago, that I could kind of see some aspect of myself in mm -hmm. really helped me understand who I am. So I guess to flip that, I now feel that my job and responsibility is to try and tell stories that help represent people, that help ground people, uh, experiences, politics, situations, uh, lived experience today by kind of referring back. 
And those kind of things are, are incredibly important, you know, across the spectrum of identity. So um, I am a cisgender gay man. I mean, I'm, I'm gay, but I am also white and privileged in many, many ways. Uh, but seeing kind of the stories of LGBTQ plus people, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer people, um, reflected in the past is really important for me and I know it's really important for other people within the community and I know that that is similar but different for for women for people of color for people with disabilities or all, all number of people seeing yourself reflected in the past is something that hasn't really been done for a long time so those of us working in museums and history today who are you know part of a minority or part of a community mm. i think we have this added sometimes this privilege sometimes this burden of needing to tell those stories because you know those stories which have not been told as often that are often left out of the narrative of human history uh those stories are so powerful and empowering and i guess because as a teenager, I felt that I know that that is an important thing to do. So that that's something that I try to carry forward. Yeah, it's great. It's really brilliant. And I guess that's one of the impressions both of past culture and our present moment is um, people who belong to all kinds of not just minority identities, but but marginalized identities, minority or, or majority ones um, are constantly being told that they are recent arrivals to an otherwise yeah. white ma uh, male uh, heterosexual um, able-bodied cis kind of a world and just unpacking and insisting on the presence of those kinds of identities and communities yeah. through history feels so so important um yeah there's that sense of we've always been here and then of course looking forward we're always going to be here so it's yeah in looking back at history you're also staking a claim in the future like we are not a, fa a phase or a fad we're not something quirky or a sprinkle on top of the cake we are baked into it and we always will be yeah yeah it's fantastic um without putting you on the spot too much do you have any particular examples of uh particular artifacts or particular places um, where you where you really especially enjoy telling these stories or perhaps where you found telling these stories most challenging either exciting or difficult yeah sure so i mean i work in a lot of places a lot of museums um around the uk a couple of in america as well which has been cool uh but i also work in other slightly less traditional spaces so i've been doing a number of tours in cemeteries and graveyards uh, I work with my friend Sheldon Goodman, who is uh, an incredible uh, tour guide. And you should definitely interview Andy. Uh, but in doing so, you are you know you're walking around, and they're very atmospheric places. You know they're they're um, very popular on Instagram over Halloween. These beautiful churchyards, jagged tombstones, tickets sticking out at all angles. Finding those headstones and finding the stories, particularly of LGBT. TQ plus people from say 100 200 years ago and telling these stories stood by the grave right of the person you're talking about um specifically people who could not talk about their lives in the same candor as i can about my own life i i have a lot of freedom in that perspective that feels like a really powerful and challenging privilege so I've done tours, for example, for Brompton Cemetery, uh, done an event called Queerly Departed, uh, which is basically sharing the stories of people who are buried there from the past who uh, today might have de de 
transgenders, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or any number of uh, identities under that umbrella. Now, it is a challenge because uh, for firstly, these people can't talk for themselves. So you are, you know, that's a huge responsibility to do this person justice. Uh, secondly, the language, you know, they, most of these people, if you are pre-early 1900s, you would not be talking about yourself as gay or bisexual or pansexual or trans. These words are, are relatively new. The words are new, the concepts not, not necessarily so. So you're trying to be respectful. You're trying to be historically accurate uh, by not using a word that doesn't make sense. Uh, but you're also trying to give these people maybe more respect than they were afforded during their lifetime. Uh, for me, that's an incredibly, you know, it's, it's challenging. It uses a lot of my brain. I really have to think it uses a lot of my heart. But when you do it right, and you have this connection between like a group of 18 year olds, and this, you know, this person who died 400 years ago, and you pull these moments together stood by the headstone. I mean, that feels really special. You know, I'm not a spiritual person personally, but that's the closest that I think I get is is feeling this this moment of the heart, like the past and the future sort of joining hands in that moment, which is really nice. Yeah, it's fascinating. I work quite a bit myself with um, Museum of London Archaeology um, and Heather Knight at MOLA, whenever I go and visit her there, she always said to me, mind the dead bodies as we walk down the corridors, literally past the dead bodies. Um, and I guess any kind of active historical engagement is an engagement with, I mean, I'm saying something really obvious here, but an engagement with dead people. But what's so interesting about archaeology and then interesting about the work you're describing is it really brings us to that kind of that point of death in the archaeology tent, well, pretty much always meets people, not just once they're dead, but kind of in the act of death or in the act of the commem commemoration of their death, often, as in a place uh, with graveyards. So you're kind of thinking about that strange tension between life and death, because you're there celebrating their lives, but at, yeah. at the space which celebrates or marks their death. And, and I guess if you're a Christian, also marks the potential for their rebirth. So you're kind of, again, past and future and present yeah, yeah. interesting things there working in those spaces has definitely shifted my perspective because before I, I did think they were these like spooky halloween spots you know and and very somber very serious and reflective and contemplative and they, they are they are designed to be spaces to go to pay your respects to remember and to mourn but also you know, around a lot of the world and throughout a lot of history, cemeteries and graveyards are often spaces of joy and colour and celebration uh, and not these sort of maudlin sort of dark spaces. And, you know, some people think it's a bit morbid to go into a cemetery and like have a chuckle and tell a story. I actually think it's more morbid to leave these spaces to rot and like to not tell those stories, uh, that for me is a bit creepy. Like, uh, you know, a museum store, what is more improper, talking about the stuff there or leaving all the old stuff to rot? Because then it's just a weird room full of old stuff that no one's talking about. That's creepy. Whereas I think talking about it and bringing it into the present um, is way more respectful and may more, way more useful, yeah. Yeah, absolutely fascinating, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm so excited to get you here, Sasha, because you do such important work for advocating for the importance of the museums and the past in the way we think and talk about the present and, and opening up um, access to things which lots of people, adults as well as children, find really hard um, 
to think about, to have the language for, and just to have the physical access to as well. So we've talked a little bit about a particular example of some of the, of the um, work you do in confronting those issues in relationship to the past. Maybe we could also talk as well about that kind of trio of things that you, you described yourself as doing when we started. So um, queer tour guides, uh, folklore experts, and escape room designer, which I feel like in our current moment of lockdown, this is we need this skill more than anything else. If you could all just appear in our houses and let us out, that would be wonderful. But yeah, could you tell us a bit more, kind of thinking now, a kind of macro level, a large scale level, what does it mean to move between these various different roles? I mean, they are very different, but they are all, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have found that my interests I've able to be able to spin into, into my career, into my working life. So I, I get to do and get paid to do what I love, which is, which is fantastic and, and awesome. Um, you know, they are all very different, but you know, when it comes on to folklore, so for those that don't know, when I say folklore, we're talking about the act of storytelling, often oral history, mythology, fairy tales. So folklore normally is not like literal history. So it's not something that's happened. It's the stories that we tell to understand the world that we live in that traditionally, uh, nowadays are often and told to children but in the past they were used as frameworks to understand uh, a lot more than that so you know things like monsters and myths and legends i'm really interested at looking at those and looking at the history of those and how that connects to you know marginalized communities so an example would be mermaids i'm kind of obsessed with mermaids uh, i find them really interesting because there's there's a lot more to it than just disney and the story of mermaids goes all the way back to ancient Syria, where you have, well, basically, I guess we would call them today transgender priestesses uh, worshipping a deity uh, called Atargatis, who was a mermaid, one of the most original kind of European depictions of a mermaid. So mermaids, if you go back, they are commonly associated with people who are slightly different in society and that's why today if you go to a to a to a pride parade you will see people dressed up as mermaids and you will see it on flags and you know and whatnot and it's not just because it's brightly colored and camp there's more to it and that's that's something that really interests me so in terms of the folklore stuff it's like looking at the stuff that we think we know, the, the stories that we tell, the stories we've been told from childhood, and then seeing like, where does that take us? And how did we get here? And where did this story come from? And who first told this story? That, that really interests me. In terms of escape rooms, now this comes, I guess, to my nerdy side, which is, you know, I'm a, a massive video game player. I've always enjoyed an adventure, a mystery, Again, why I got into history, I love to unravel stories. I like to find out who done it, like who was buried in this grave, what, who owned this object and why is it here? Um, and that applied is basically creating experiences specifically in museums um, where you get a group of people and you send them out on an adventure. And for an hour, they are the most important people there. And they've got an hour to, you know, solve a puzzle, unearth a mystery, get rid of a curse, whatever it is. The pure escapism of that and the joy of that and seeing people in museums where you know, often I know for a lot of people, museums can be quite dry, dull, dusty, fusty places, but seeing them running around and, and being playful, particularly seeing adults getting to grips with their childhood in terms of just letting go uh, and, and, and having fun is something that I really enjoy. So it's, if there's a commonality there, 
It is getting people to do different things in historical spaces other than just stood there looking at a cabinet and not really connecting with it. And it is trying to make people feel something. Um, I, I say this on my tours. I say it on talks that I do about mermaids. I say it in my escape rooms. Like if I've been successful in whatever I've been doing, you're going to feel something. And that can be revulsion or fear. Uh, it doesn't have to be joy, um, but you're going to have an emotional response. And, and the escape rooms I build tend to be in museums because what I'm trying to do is connect the experience of, if you've ever done an escape room, basically you spend an hour solving a bunch of puzzles with you and your mates and you've got to see if you can escape or you've got to solve the puzzle in time. But I set it in a museum so that you are engaging with the stuff in cabinets that you might just walk right by normally, but I'm trying to get you to actually feel like it's important. And I'm putting it on a pedestal. You have to look at this old bit of ceramics because the clue to the next thing is hidden in it. So I guess, yeah, that's the rough through line, but it is an odd mix. I, I won't deny it. I'm a weird person. <laughs> It sounds great. And you're saying if you've ever done an escape room, like the whole last year has been an escape room. So everyone, everyone's done it. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by that because it feels like museums tend to have a very clear sense of how you're supposed to move through them and what you're supposed to do while you move through them, which is be quiet and look at stuff um, in a usually linear way from kind of A to B. And, and what you're doing is kind of, in a sense, you're creating a whole new story for people to follow and to remap where they go, what they do while they're in particular places, how they move through the, the building is all being changed by yeah. the, the mystery that you've devised for them, right? The story that you're taking them on. Yeah, that's that's the goal. It's also like like you kind of said, the museum in, in the past in particular has been like, it has the knowledge which it dictates to you and you passively consume it. So you go in, there's a cabinet, there's a little bit of square text, it tells you what to think about the thing and then you move on, you read the next square bit of text. So anything that reframes it so that actually maybe you are the most important person in this narrative is interesting to me. And I think to be fair, nearly every museum nowadays, the past 10 years, they are doing some really interesting stuff. And uh, as flattering it is as it is to take credit for all of this, there are, you know, the museum sector, if there are young people watching this, is, is this really weird messy dark bloody crazy space but it is also incredibly vibrant and the people who are starting to work in these spaces are not the people you would expect the kinds of things that museums are doing around the world at the moment is really transgressive and surprising it, nowhere near as much as it should be um and not all the time but I, I think museums are starting to almost like we're leaving behind that old reputation of just being dusty, dead places. Because I can't think of a museum that doesn't have something in the works, at least, that's actually really surprising and really innovative. I think it's just the fact that they have been these monoliths of history, generally kind of imperial, promoting empire, very white centric, very male centric for such a long time that even like getting them to move, you have to build up so much momentum just to shift them. But there are a lot of people pushing in that direction. Definitely not me. I cannot take credit for all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think either of us are trying to frame museums in any particular way. And if anything, I think it's more about how we've often been taught to think about museums yeah. um, and to add to the various ways in which we think about it 
that you just mentioned, I think um, class as well has been a really huge aspect in in UK um, notions of uh, of who gets to be in a museum and who who doesn't, and who would be interested in going to a museum and who wouldn't. You know, we've been told those stories based on class as well. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sasha, you fairly briefly tantalised us with the history of mermaids. Um, is there anything else you want to tell us? I feel like I feel like that was for you a relatively short uh, account of why mermaids matter. So feel free to give us some more mermaids before okay. I move on. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you so that you know this is not the full entirety of the mermaid story. So <laughs> when I'm asked why mermaids, like on the surface level, because they're cool, and when I was younger, I liked the Little Mermaid. And I noticed that a lot of other LGBT people liked mermaids. I started to work with the transgender youth network uh, Mermaids UK on a project uh, a few years ago. And I was kind of saying, well, why are you called mermaids? I'm just really interested. And this sort of started, so I can kind of owe a lot of this to Mermaids UK. And they mentioned that a lot of young uh, trans kids and gender fluid kids are really into mermaids, more so than the average kid for a number of different reasons. And one of them was because, um, for example, if you take Ariel, uh, she has no visible genitalia. So she has a fish tail. Now, she is a woman because that's how she lives. You know, she is Ariel because of that. You don't need to sex check Ariel. That's what she is. But also, she transforms. So she gets legs, right? So there's a sense of wanting a different body, maybe to that which you are assigned at birth or you were given at birth, and then getting what you want at the end. And this, this kind of narrative is really reassuring and empowering. But the story itself goes way back. So I mentioned very quickly and very briefly, like one of the ancient mermaids uh, is, is this, this goddess Atargatis. She had uh, priestesses who would self-castrate, incredibly painful experience, uh, to show their devotion to this mermaid deity. Uh, and then they would live their lives as women. And there are depictions of these priestesses wearing you know, long kind of feminine clothes of the time with makeup and jewelry, very respected of, of the time. But if you go a little bit further forward, let's, let's think about probably the most famous version of the mermaid story we know of, which was written by Hans Christian Andersen. Now, Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote the fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, um, he was himself queer. So we have his diaries. It's great when people keep diaries because we actually get their words. We don't have to make it up. But he had, you know, romantic feelings. He was very explicit about for men and for women. For example, falling in love with a man called Edvard Collin. And just after Edvard basically wrote back to Hans Christian Andersen and said, I'm really sorry, but I, I, I don't feel the same way. Um, you know, basically Hans was devastated and he wrote The Little Mermaid. So The Little Mermaid could be seen as a piece of writing written by a man whose sexuality did not fit with the, you know, the, the, that of the time. You know, we're talking the 1800s. No, definitely not. Uh, and, and he then wrote this story about this half-formed creature who wanted to be in a different world, was being rejected, was looking for a prince that she could never have. And spoilers, by the way, in the original writing of the book, it ends really badly. So she gets her legs, but every step she takes is like treading on broken glass. Uh, she has her tongue cut out like with a pair of scissors. And she doesn't get the prince at the end. She is turned into sea foam. It's actually a really tragic story. It's really heartbreaking. 
So I, I see it, again, it's my interpretation as a queer man who's writing a fairy story, it's taking the mythos of mermaids and using it as a way to deal with heartbreak and grief. This story then gets taken by Disney. And who is the man who works on this film? Well, it's Howard Ashman. No, uh, he was working for Disney, a gay man, living during the 80s, uh, who takes the character of Ursula the Sea Witch and bases it on um, Divine, who was a drag queen. Uh, he wrote an originally voice before they had cast the actress. He originally wrote Part of Your World. And when you hear a gay man in the 80s singing this song, it suddenly has a very different meaning. I want to be part of your world. Well, what world? Well, again, this is my reading of it. What about talking about being rejected from society, being seen as disgusting, being seen as an underclass? You know, he is then diagnosed with HIV whilst working on The Little Mermaid and died tragically shortly afterward uh, whilst working on Beauty and the Beast. And his legacy is reflected in the credits there. And, and there's more than this. You know, you can go, there's a million one stories, but Oscar Wilde, he rewrote a version of the original Little Mermaid called, you know, The Fisherman and His Soul. The, there is uh, the painter, Evelyn de Morgan, who had a relationship with both a man and a woman. She created a painting called The Sea Maidens, depicting the woman that she loved. So it, the symbol of the mermaid, it's not just queer today. It's resonating throughout time and that for me is really powerful i love telling that story because you can say to people today like nobody owns a symbol right um a mermaid is a symbol that is empowering for probably for, for feminists for women for all kinds of people can see something in it but for the queer community i can package this up and say look this is also yours too you have a right to this symbol uh, you have a heritage, a rich heritage to this symbol. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, that's that's just like the surface. I, I've done full talks on mermaids that last an hour and a half. So there you go. That was a taster. We'll get you back for that. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also, I often wonder if mermaids are sort of linked to, I feel like we don't talk enough about heterophobia in the Western tradition, which often is also just misogyny and should rightly be called called that, but mermaids are often used, I'm thinking about the most recent film, The Lighthouse, um, but but more widely, the kind of tradition of um, terrifying female sea monsters oh, yeah. and sexuality, and particularly their effect on supposedly heterosexual men, they're often being used as kind of symbols of what is terrifying about heterosexuality, and often in the context of incredibly kind of homoerotic um, communities. Again, The Lighthouse is quite a good example of that, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, they just sit oddly, don't they? Both both queer, but also often troubling the idea of straightness as well, I think. Mer mermaids are not necessarily always these empowering characters. They, ca they can be, but also, you know, they are... They were the original pinups, right? So they were a way that particularly sailors could tattoo themselves, could have them printed up on ships, basically sexy ladies. Uh, but it's classical because it's a mermaid, so it's acceptable. It's not porn pornographic. It's classical because it's a mermaid. And so in some ways, these are some of the worst depictions of women you could imagine they're beautiful vapid looking in the mirror right monstrous they'll kill you you've got to watch out for them they represent all the dangers of the sea uh they're beautiful but then down below you've got the fish which again is incredibly uh is you know there's there's depth to that in terms of misogyny so that all of these symbols i'm only talking about it in one direction you could look at 
the, the idea of a mermaid from so many different angles and different voices, different perspectives will see different narratives in there. Uh, but they're just an example of how you can follow a particular constellation of stories and it can take you somewhere really interesting. Great. Thank you, Sasha. Um, it's fantastic to hear about the various things you've been up to. Um, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about what the future is for you? We've talked about other people's futures. Um, where are you taking your work next? I mean, I'm a little bit chaotic, so I, I never entirely know exactly what's next. But um, I mean, the goal is to survive lockdown, which so far I've, I've been doing, which has been nice. I've been taking my, normally my my tours are in person. They've all been virtual more recently. Um, I want to continue to do tours again. I'm really looking forward to doing some more in-person tours. Hopefully this summer that will be kicking off again. Um, I'm looking, I'm working on a few escape room projects uh, that will actually be physical, not digital. So I'm, uh, I won't say where they are, but there is a big one somewhere. Just watch this space. Um, I'm also, so I, I think I can probably say this freely. I'm, I've been talking to the British Museum about doing some projects, uh, particularly looking at video games. So seeing if we can use um, video games as, as a really interesting way to get people that normally might not come to a museum uh, to come there and connect with stuff. As a side thing, I've just started writing a novel, uh, which I mean, like who, who isn't? Everyone under lockdown is writing a book. It's like, going, it's, it's Mr. Cappuccino all over again. But um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm giving it a go. I'm trying my, my, my hand at writing uh, a bit of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, no false modesty here. I have no idea if it's going to be any good, but I'm giving it a go anyway. So that's that's another future project that I'm working on. It's it's all just it's all wrapped around storytelling. Mm. Um, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years from now, um, but it's been really cool so far. So I hope it will just continue to be cool. That's the idea. Oh, that's that's a very good ambition. I feel like we should all embrace that ambition. I love that. Um, all right, I'm going to take those two things uh, one at a time, if that's right. But yeah, that's fascinating. I recently returned to being a gamer um, after, well, I was a, I was a teenage gamer wannabe um, and uh, I've got really into gaming recently. And they are all sort of about um, artifact collecting, like um, Uncharted, Tomb Raider, yeah. Assassin's Creed, the most recent Zelda. It's all about trying to reconstruct what happened 100 years before or what have you via artifacts so I, I love that idea of taking that what already feels like quite a museum-y genre of a of, of thing yep. although we don't often think about games like that and then putting them back into museums so i'd love to hear more about that yeah so for me and again i'm going to do a little self-plug here apologies but i've i've done a virtual video game tour for the museum of london so if you search game city you can look that up um which is a whole tour based around video games of their collection we'll but the put, idea um, is, just for just for listeners we'll put the link to that underneath the film so if you want to follow that up it'll be just below the film on our website it, Give it a look, plug, plug, plug. Um, but the, yeah, the, the thing for me is that video games for a while have been seen as a waste of time, a pastime for white boys, right? And I think we're moving beyond that now. We're now seeing them as a universal thing, uh, which is more than just a form of entertainment. It is, a, it is an art form. And, you know, when you go to a traditional tour, picture your most traditional tour. So you've got like some serious fellow walking around, goes up to a painting and it's a big old painting full of old people and says, oh, this was inspired by the neoclassical movement. And that whole thing, we expect to look at a painting and there's a whole story about it, about who, well, who inspired it and where do these symbols come from and what do they represent? 
it's kind of just doing that with video games and saying, well, when people create video games, it's, you know, often companies with thousands of people, artists, researchers, coders, programmers, testers, everything that's going on there is a, it's a collaborative effort. And so they are being inspired by all sorts of things. So even something that seems as basic as Pokemon, right? Each of those Pokemon is often inspired by a fascinating piece of mythology or story or character or animal or anecdote. So you can go to the British Museum and you can find like a piece of papyrus with this obscure symbol and trace it all the way to this ridiculous Pokemon character. And it's just doing the, treating video games with the same level of intrigue and respect that we would the large kind of painting or mosaic. Um, and for me, that's really fun because you know, it, again, it's like a treasure trail. You go around like the British Museum, you find the weird thing in the cabinet. I like to get people to guess, like, which video game do you think we're going to talk about? And nearly always they're wrong, which is great. Yeah, it's like, okay, we'll see where we get. So we're going to get from here to like Resident Evil killing zombies in the most weird way that you <laughs> could possibly expect. Yeah, but that's, that for me is fun. It's just respecting the art of gaming. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. I love that. Um, and then finally, Sasha, you tantalizingly again uh, mentioned uh, the novel that you're writing. And I'm not sure everyone in lockdown is writing a novel. I'm not writing a novel. Um, so God, you... that was pretentious of me, wasn't it? Everyone's writing a no, novel. No, 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 no. Sure. But are you willing to share a bit more? Sure. So, yeah, this is, um, this is uh, I've wanted to write a book for about uh, 13 years. And it's been the same story. And, you know, I, I love telling stories. Um, you know, it's something I've always really enjoyed creating worlds. So that's what I do with my escape room stuff. Uh, and so finally, I you know, decided only a few weeks ago, like Sasha, stop talking about it, just do it. So every day I'm just trying to write. It's, um, it's a science fiction fantasy, possibly YA, young adult. So, you know, you're probably sick to death of those. Uh, but this one, I, I don't want to give too much away. It's an adventure that involves uh, three characters. In some ways, it's very traditional. Three characters meet they're all very different, but they get to like each other and then they go off and they have to save the world. Like that's very standard trope. Uh, but I'm trying to play around with a few, a few archetypes and things that I, I don't know that I've seen before that have been mulling around in my head. One of the things worth saying is I never set out to write a book like this is going to be a diverse book with a diverse cast, but because I am who I am and I do the work I do, I feel like I am trying to represent different kinds of voices within that. So you know, one of my characters is uh, bisexual and one of my characters is, um, is intersex uh, and kind of non-binary. So they use they, them pronouns. Now, I've said at the beginning of this, I'm a cisgender gay man. So I am trying to consult as much with writing these characters. I will get people to read through just to make sure that I'm getting it right. But what I'm trying to do in these characters is look at, the history I've been able to research, for example, the fact that non-gender conforming people, people who might today define as trans in the past, have often in many different societies had roles as uh, spiritual leaders, as you know, religious leaders, priestesses, I mentioned earlier, shamans, that kind of thing. So in my story, my character is, is, is kind of borrowing from some of those ancient, we're talking classic 
classical thousands of years ago, but bringing it into a sci-fi setting. Um, my goal is to write this character really respectfully. I'm, I'm really enjoying writing them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's the kind of sci-fi that I can't help but write because of the stuff that I'm interested in. And there is a mermaid in there because of course there is. Of course. Uh, until you said that, I was about to say you're being just a little bit tight-lipped about who the three characters are. And I reckon that, you know, you like to set mysteries you've told us. I reckon I've cracked your code here and I reckon there's going to be a, a grave digger, a mermaid meeting a gamer. That's what I've decided is going to happen. Well, if you really want to know, it's more like a shaman, a bioanthropologist, uh, and an assassin. So there you go. That's all you're getting. That's all you're getting for now. I love, that's a lot. I feel like I've got a lot there. That was a good <laughs> Um, we end our films, Sasha, by asking what the word literature means to you. And I guess I'm, ex I'm especially excited. We've spoken to quite a few creative writers on this project, but um, as someone who's uh, just in the last few weeks, you've told us, started writing this novel, you know, you, you're moving into this genre. I mean, you're a professional writer um, anyway, but as someone who's kind of taking that professional writing in a very specific direction at the moment. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what, that, what the word literature means to you, and particularly at this particular moment, point in your career. So I, I can't help that, you know, all words have baggage, right? So the word literature, I can't, I, even though you didn't say it that way, I hear like literature, like, you know, it's, it's, it's instantly like big, dusty, tome, serious, heavy, meaningful. You know, there are certain things that are literature and there are certain things that aren't. Uh, so, so instantly I have, you know, a, a slight aversion to that word, although I know really that word just means kind of, writing it means creativity it means storytelling all the things that i love so i guess i think back to all the books that i read as a kid that formed me you know the, the experience i had and those complex relationships i have with those stories so i'm thinking of his dark materials uh, by philip pullman i i consumed those as a teenager lost myself in those worlds and i'm going to mention it harry potter by jk rowling and uh you know obviously if you've been following a lot of the things that have been going on around uh you know her opinions on the trans community that has been you know an incredibly painful thing because i loved those worlds I loved those characters. I was the same age as Harry with the first book that came out. And now my relationship with that author has had to change. Now, I, I, I cannot see those worlds in quite the same way anymore. They have been tarred and they have been changed for me. Uh, so literature, when you say it, I think of my childhood. So I think of the books that formed me, the relationships I had with them then and how I, I maybe relate the same or different to them today. And in writing or trying to write uh, at the moment, it's like I am, I am writing for my teenage self. I'm trying to write the world that I want to escape into. And I'm trying to write the characters that are going to, that would have intrigued and excited me. Uh, that's, that's all I'm trying to do. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh, Sasha, I can't wait to read the book. Um, good luck with it and please hurry up. Um, it's been a real joy to uh, talk to you about your work. It's quite incredible and really inspiring and exciting. And I think a lot of people will be inspired uh, and excited by this. And anyone who is not yet writing a novel under lockdown, I'm sure will be by the end of this film. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I really look forward to seeing what, what you do next. Cheers. Thank you, Andy.